This episode is sponsored by a patron of the Institute for Research and Applied Learning, also referred to as InReal. InReal is a California nonprofit, 501c3, focused on pairing AI and the science of human development and behavior to better serve human interaction among communities. In its inaugural product, InReal will aid parents of distance learning students in better understanding their educational mindset, both cognitively and emotionally, and help build community resilience in similar-minded families. Visit inreal.org. On this episode, we have Brandon Larson. Brandon is an engineer and entrepreneur who loves to adopt systems thinking to leverage science principles to better the human experience. He has been a lifelong tinkerer since his youth when his parents would encourage him to find continuous improvements to projects. He has honed his expertise at NASA, Boeing, and Red Bull. The last position came to him after being a finalist for an online competition they were running. His mantra is conceive, create, repeat. He has spent close to the last decade with Red Bull focused on a multidisciplinary approach to human performance, particularly with elite athletes. Today, he focuses on a handful of initiatives around building community resilience via clustering distance learning students and parents around educational mindset and other projects around the behavioral neuroscience of decision-making and thought management, leveraging psychometric models and AI determinants. Brandon, thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thanks, Asim. Appreciate it, man. Looking forward to it. No, as am I. We've uh, kind of known about each other for some months now and only recently had a chance to uh, chat and connect. Um, but uh, your, your reputation on the podcast uh, precedes you. Yesterday, we did our inaugural virtual panel, and the topic was mindfulness, uh, technology and mindfulness. And one of our guests was uh, David DeJesus, who has been a, a guest on the podcast itself as well and uh he he referenced you he said uh so a good friend of mine when i was working at red bull named brandon larson <laughs> ah crazy our, our audience out to david <laughs> already aware and uh, of course that when it was over i said you, you'll never believe this but i'm interviewing brandon tomorrow morning so uh good timing uh, the universe is, is aligned I, I love when that happens yeah so, Brandon, love to go back to the very beginning. Um, you were born and raised in Louisiana, is it? I was uh, born in Alaska and then raised in Louisiana since I was six. Okay. I don't actually have a memory of pre-six. I don't know. It's just wow. out there. Yeah, no, so interesting. Uh, which part of Alaska were you in? Anchorage. I was born in Anchorage. My parents were uh, part of a religious group and my dad was a pastor so he was uh, up there setting up a church. Okay. And then somehow at six, I ended up in Louisiana. Gotcha. Uh, they left with $480. So that's all our entire family. Yeah. I'm the oldest. I have a younger brother and sister. We all got in a station wagon. We drove from Colorado, crossed yeah. the border in Louisiana, lived in a motel for a couple of weeks while my parents went out and just cleaned houses and repaired things wow. and that is what um that's where my beginning of my memory kind of starts yeah. is being raised in louisiana from six on okay. and uh yeah it's really interesting wow. but was there any other family in louisiana or you don't even really know no. why they chose louisiana well so I, the the reason they chose louisiana was because i guess uh prior to being in Alaska or somewhere in those zero to six years, they were in Louisiana for a tiny bit in Alexandria and yeah. they really liked it. Yeah. And so they just got in the car and drove until they crossed the border and stopped and set up shop. So amazing. What's so yeah. fascinating is um, how, um, you know, these decisions influence our lives so much, like the kids' lives so much. And it kind of just puts into focus what what, what we're doing because we're both parents and uh, <laughs> vis-a-vis our, yeah. our children. Um, wow. So um, what was it like growing up in Louisiana? You know, I liked it. I, I grew up in an area that was very mixed. Uh, so it was very white, very black. Uh, the school I went to was probably... 20 or 30 percent white so i grew up in um just in a neighborhood where i that was the experience and the culture that i had 
And so, you know, just bringing that right now to today, because it's a little triggered for me, is seeing some of the inequality and seeing some of the divide. It, it strikes me very hard because I saw that all growing up as a child, but I was very much in it. So I didn't, I don't understand why as much um, because, because I've, I've experienced that side and also experienced how I got treated differently, even though I was the same as everybody else, literally just because of the color of my skin. Yeah. So, yeah. But growing up in Louisiana was, was, was great. It was, a lot of uh, good food, good times, friendly people. Yeah, it's nice. nice. It's a nice state for that. Yeah. So what, what did you do for fun? Like when you got your homework done, what was the thing that you turned to? So uh, my brother and sister and I and a lot of the neighborhood kids were kind of latchkey kids. Right. So we would just get home, finish our homework, run out the back door. Uh, there was a huge forest uh, near our house and a big kind of drainage ditch system. So mm-hmm go look for frogs, uh, go to the fishing hole, go climb some trees, get into trouble, things like that. It was really nice. fun. Nice. The, the original lab. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Um, were you an avid reader? You know, I don't remember books being so ingrained in my life in childhood. Mm. Um, I know my parents read to myself and my brother and sisters a lot. But that's, that's my wife and I were talking about it the other day. If the house was burning down, the only things I would try to take were it would be a couple books off the shelf. And then everything else is, is on digital formats now. So my, my most prized possession is my audible collection. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great. Um, love that. Um, were you a, a tinker? uh growing up did you like to take things apart see how they work build your own very much so my dad he was uh so my dad studied architecture and in the university of minnesota very interesting guy he basically walked out on the last day before his last final needed to graduate he woke up that morning and just said i don't want to be an architect so while his roommate went and took his final, my dad packed up his dorm and left. Oh, uh, then that's and then he went on a trip and um, around Europe, came back, went to seminary school, then uh, took that path. Wow. But what's fascinating is that he always had that drive inside. So when we came to Louisiana, what he did was he went to the phone book. Uh, he's he's kind of a, got a little bit of a marketing mind, yeah. and he opens it up and says the, the town we were in is called Shreveport. Sure. There's no Shreveport sign company. So he says, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go right down to the, to the office and I'm going to set up Shreveport sign company and I'm going to set up a sign shop. So he did that and he still has it to this day. It's wow. pretty much been a one man business, okay. but he, he, it's, he, he's able to combine his love of building and his love of art mm-hmm. and his love of architecture into just getting in it after it's problem solving, getting hands on. So he had a shop growing up and I would go out there and just watch him tinker. Nice. And then I would go tinker. Nice. So at a, at a younger age, I learned welding and metal cutting and woodworking and a lot of different things, right. uh, side making. Gotcha. And you know, a lot of times I would be brought with him to go do some of these activities as well, help him install as a helper. Oh, yeah. So 11, 12 years old, I'm like trying to put signs up. <laughs> but yeah, wow. so it's ingrained pretty deep from yeah. an early age. That's fantastic. Well, uh, I imagine that. I... Sorry, something cut out. Did hello. So I, I'm thinking that was the genesis of your desire to study engineering. You know, um, that that one kind of was a zigzag path. Okay. I since I was a kid, uh, again six, seven, something around in that area. I had a neighborhood friend that came up to me and said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I either want to be a builder or I want to be a dinosaur. And by like eight, the dinosaur thing hadn't worked out. So I just really went after the building thing, but I didn't really know what it meant. I just wanted to build stuff. So I thought building by kind of college time was physics. Because, you know, the world's built with atoms and quarks and little molecules and physics. If you want to, 
you want to build things in physics. <laughs> so I got a physics degree. And then at the end of it, I was like, uh, I think I meant applied physics. Oh, that's engineering, mechanical engineering. So then I started all over again, uh, went to school in St. Louis, did a mechanical engineering degree. And then I got to that point and I was thinking about building again. And I said, you know what? This isn't right either. You have to figure out how things go together. So it's like how particles arrange, but then how things in real life are used. That's systems theory. That's systems engineering. So I stayed around more school and got my master's yeah, in master's. systems. And now it's like, ah, okay, now we can get to work. <laughs> so that, that's, that's where the building came from. But oh. then I realized building wasn't specific enough. Right. It needs to be building things that matter. And that is nice because it's empowering. It, it's people, it's communities, it's products. It's really anything that could make some sort of an impact. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Um, so there's a little bit of your dad in you in terms of uh, uh, this isn't right yet. I got to get this right. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I've, I've never actually put that together, but I think, yeah, you just That's opened great. some of my psyche. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love it when that happens, by the way. <laughs> um, so you made your way after St. Louis, Wash University, St. Louis to, um, to Houston, the Johnson Space Center where you worked on something that does really matter, the International Space Station. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. It was my first job out of school and I was down at um, NASA uh, with the Boeing relationship and we were trying to work out reliability on the space station. And the fun thing that happened down there was we had an astronaut that was in space and I was somebody who was running what's called the FAMIA, the failure modes and effects analysis software. Mm -hmm. And I had written a couple um, scripts in their database to be able to search for things quicker and find resolution to what's called an onboard anomaly, yes. uh, which is basically a problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where you could find a solution to those problems faster. So one day, actually, I was at the water cooler, and there were two guys talking about how one of the astronauts had forgotten a toothbrush. Um, I guess, you know, you're packing for space, you just, uh, I mean, I forget my toothbrush all the time, so <laughs> I guess, right? There's no um, CVS in the ISS. <laughs> so, so I heard that, and I was like, okay, well, we're sending a bunch of light bulbs, and we looked through the software and found that you could cycle one of the light bulbs from a different area, a different node into a, a one of the other labs. And you maybe didn't need that on that run, on that supply run. So we sent him uh, his toothbrush by swapping it out for a light bulb because, you know, just those little grams, they cost a lot of money yeah. to send to space. So yeah. it was fun. I got to jump on the space phone and talk to the astronaut uh, at the time. And uh, he thanked me for his clean mouth. Yeah, I bet. Way to contribute uh, to his oral hygiene. Um, right. I love the ingenuity there. That's uh, that's really clever. I mean, and, and you know, the notion of of things that uh, that matter. Um, but, uh, it's it's amazing how yeah. Sometimes it's the smallest things, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we take for granted. Um, so you were at the Johnson Space Center for a short period of time, but then you continued on with Boeing for like eight years. Yep. Uh, was that a different location? Did you move from Houston? Yeah, I moved from Houston. I didn't like how I was frustrated very quickly with how slow kind of government work is and some of that. And the thing I found too was everybody was so incredibly passionate about space. And in that time, I realized it wasn't space that I was that passionate about. It was that I thought those were the hardest problems to solve. Yeah. Um, I've just naturally been drawn to challenging problems. And that is one where if you send something to space, it kind of needs to work right. and it has to be very reliable. And yeah. you can't just generally go and fix these things right off the bat. And you really have to base things on really solid thinking and a lot of hard science. So um, I wanted, 
yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, 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 this is your desire to leave the Johnson Space Center, the government, oh, work, yeah. and then also the more challenging. It was less about your passion for space than it was solving complex problems. Right, exactly. And and I felt frustrated in the ability to solve complex problems uh, in, in that position, that role. So I actually had met a individual at kind of one of the restaurants in, in Houston, and they were talking about California and um, the space, the, the uh, they were talking about California and the groups here who are in space, uh, here in El Segundo area in Southern California. And so I transferred out here and uh, quickly found my way into research and development where we got to solve really hard problems with really tight deadlines, with really small teams, with really big budgets in our case. Wow, that was it's almost like a dream come true. <laughs> yeah, there were several times um, in my life where I looked back and said, you know, 10 year old me is just giddy right now. <laughs> like knowing the things that I'm, that I'm dabbling in. Yeah. And that was one, we had a, uh, so there's this, there's this, principle in satellite development called test as you fly. It's actually really anything for space. You need to test things so that you actually are testing how it's going to behave in space. Gotcha. One of the very challenging things to do in those environments is to test hinges. So if I have uh, like a satellite and I have a solar panel and the solar panel has to come out right. and it's floating through space, there's a load. Right. There's, there's forces that are going through this hinge. Now on Earth, this hinge, so the hinge needs to be designed for space, but on Earth, there's a lot more load. Yeah. So you have to, what's called offload, or you have to uh, create a, a buoyancy to that. Yeah. So what we do is uh, you use these intricate railings that make things the same alignment and weight that they would be in space. But one really cool thing is you can actually do it with balloons full of helium. So, okay. yeah, so if you've ever seen, like, the, the kids' show or the, the TV movie, the, um, if you've ever seen Up, that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like that. You just float <laughs> the house. Gotcha. So okay, so you float the solar go into, panel. <laughs> yeah, so you go in these rooms and you have these solar panels. And we, one time we had to float a 75-foot-long solar panel. Oh, wow. I'm wrapping my it's head massive, that. right? It's like but a bus. Yeah, it was almost 200 pounds of, of uh, wow. photovoltaic cells, and that's a lot of balloons. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also about 200 pounds. <laughs> so at some point, maybe, maybe Very not. I don't cool. know if this actually happened. I can't confirm or deny, but maybe the up scenario <laughs> related to my body <laughs> popping out the house. Anyway. Purely for can't the sake of science, just to be sure that uh, you had accuracy in, in terms of quantity and amount of helium. I totally get it. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's testing. I was just making sure everything's got, exactly. <laughs> well done. Right. <laughs> um, that's great. Well, so yeah, you spent some time in satellite factory. I think it was described as, and then also working on lightweight solar solutions. Those are also the the panels that you were describing. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, and then the structures that deploy those. We had a really awesome team. Um, all my all my former teammates are all doing really awesome things nowadays nice. too. Nice. Yeah. Now, did you begin surfing at that time? Um, I so I've been here in California since 2005, right. and I think I that started to explore it and learn it in 2007. I think it took a couple years for me to see people in the water and just sitting around waiting, doing nothing and not really comprehending that. And then the first time I caught a wave, I was just kind of hooked forever, wow. which is what happens in surfing. But um, yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, and um, surf spot technologies, when did you launch that? Oh boy, that's getting deep into the dark <laughs> hole of my past. Yeah. That was finish. It was 2008, 2010, something in there. Uh, essentially, 
uh, a friend of mine, also one of my old R&D partners, a guy named Andrew Street, actually. Okay. He works down in uh, Southern California at a place called Swift Engineering. Okay. I, I just have to give an aside, but Swift Engineering is the group that developed Mario Andretti's race cars, the very first wow. open wheel formula cars. Um, on top of that, they were the they were the group that went from napkin to the Honda, uh, the Honda Jet in wow. like a hundred days. They're probably one of the most amazingly um, powerful, like in terms of their their knowledge base and efficiency and processes and and do and ability to do um, of any engineering firm I know. And they recently just had a huge success of launching a massive lightweight solar powered plane that is now flying around uh it's it's really incredible but andrew is the vice president of engineering there or head of engineering and andrew and i used to cook up ideas all the time we both have kids as well same similar ages and uh we were really starting to dabble into wave wave technologies so how can you use uh mechanical components to propagate waves Wave pulls had been around for quite a while, and we just did a massive deep dive into the history of wave pools, wave pool technologies, all the way from the very beginning to the New Zealanders with Dr. Larry Black to the uh, the uh, Murphy's waves with Douglas Murphy out in Scotland. That's actually the pool that's in uh, Disneyland, Typhoon Lagoon, that uh, you can surf. Right. So some of the very mm-hmm. first surfing pools, all the way out to um, Essentially now what's happened is you see the Kelly Slater pools, you see the American wave machines. There's a really cool BSR cable park in Waco, Texas. And these, these technologies, essentially they just, you just have to push water in a certain way and then shape the bottom of a pool in a certain way to create a characteristic or a dynamic of a wave and a wave shape. And that allows surfing to be done in a controlled environment now. So we had started this thing called SurfSpot Technologies to start um, developing some of that information uh, to push out. But it, it it's a very interesting world, that one. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well done. So now, it, do you have a preference being a, a surfing in a wave pool versus out in the ocean? Oh, man. I like both. Okay. Um, I've, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I like both of those, but I with kids these days, I don't <laughs> surf as much as I used to. Yeah. I would love to surf more, but yeah. yeah. I, I hear when they're both four over four, I can surf more. Gotcha. That, okay. that might just be me though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something to that. Uh, four yeah. is a is a bit of a transition period. They're they're less physically dependent exclusively on you uh, and that, that changes but mind you brandon there's always stress it just shifts it's, it moves from the physical drain to become this emotional mental one as they uh get into adolescence and their teenage years so um that never well, well th- thanks for that <laughs> yeah. just in case yeah i, I want to calibrate the relief you're anticipating <laughs> right. Right. yeah yeah uh, I'll send, I'll send you a thank you note in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had uh, a few of these uh, endeavors that were kind of um, parallel to um, your career path because then you also launched this uh, Snapton Photo Boots business. Yeah. Bear with us. So, uh, absolutely. So I'll just caveat all of this with two things. The first is that I think growing up seeing my parents in a very non-traditional employment, my dad always just going out and hustling for business. My mom, she was um, big into health and wellness. Uh, She worked really hard at at a fitness center and then eventually would, you know, establish a really great relationship with the owner. And when he passed away, uh, she was able to take over the facility and buy it from him. And then, uh, and then their, her life kind of grew into that. And now she's uh, the fitness lady in, in Shreveport, Louisiana. That's nice. who she is. And whenever I go home and go around town, everybody goes, are you Kedgy's son? <laughs> You're Kedgy's son. You look just like her. 
so it's uh it's a weird <laughs> that, thing that was awesome but, thank but, you <laughs> you took us right you took us to the other la <laughs> right that's yeah exactly i say i'm from the real la you know i don't want to say that in certain parts of this la though so uh yeah but just seeing my parents in this non-traditional aspect uh i always really 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 wanted to explore anything and everything and then throughout childhood i just had this unbridled amount of curiosity and i really either attribute it or blame it to a thing my dad did when i was a kid I think probably from around the age of, it might've been 10 to about 15, we had this whiteboard in our house next to the garage. And every day he would take a marker, a dry erase marker, and he would make, he would just start something. And the expectation was that at the end of the day, I had to have contributed to it in some other way that had changed it. Wow. So wow. every single day for 900 or a thousand days, I had a, a, a little project and some days I'd do something very small, turn this, turn the circle into a second circle and put a little thing and make it a donut. Right. Other days I would just go nuts on the whole board and, and make something um, more interesting, at least to me. Yeah. And so I think that that always made me interested to look at anything I saw that could be changed for that may be the better yeah. or modified. So and so all of these things, um, I was surfing one day, right? And then I was like, man, I just, I don't like waiting so much and I want to surf today, but there's no waves. Yeah. So I just sat down with Andrew and we read all, read <laughs> everything we could on it. We contacted the companies, Mitsubishi Industrial Power Supply in Japan. We, we did all the research and we designed a system and we said, okay, well, let's, like a business. So that was that story. Then with uh, Snapden, my wife and I were getting married and we were looking for photo booths and this was 2009. And the photo booth industry was literally a, you, you know, it's like a box with curtains on it. Right. And there was no design aesthetic. There was no anything. It, it just, it just really sucked. Yes. And so <laughs> what That's I did was I was there term. with, yeah, that is the absolute <laughs> technical term. It's a low pressure zone and a high pressure zone that meet each other and they create a suck. <laughs> so we, we ended up having, having this discussion with my friends, probably over a cocktail. I don't really remember. It was my wedding. And it, it just, there was no reason for them to be so ugly, so user unfriendly, basically a, a, a modern replica of the old photo booths, yeah. which made no sense. Yeah. So we sat down and we said, what if they could be really beautiful? And so we established two principles of what we thought would solve the problem is that one, curtains belong on showers, not on photo booths. And two, curves bring people together. Because when you look at the curves of a human body, they, you know, they kind of, they fit together in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. So curves bring people together. And so from there, we did what uh, I think you know, myself, maybe from, I don't know where I've, I've gotten it from, but intuiting uh, human behavior a little bit. So we looked through and we said, okay, what are all the touch points? And this is called design thinking and human centered design. And there's all these fancy terms for it, but essentially it's like design things for how humans actually like to use them. And we looked at it and we said, look, there's, there seem to be 48 different interaction steps with a photo booth everything from hearing about it, having a preconceived notion, to seeing it at a facility, to waiting in line, to using it, to reviewing your photos later, or even finding the photo strip six days later from you know, a pocket somewhere that, right. as you're coming out of your bender. So <laughs> that was really interesting. And we looked at photo booths compared to that, and most of them hit about 16 of the 48, 42 steps. Okay. So we tried to build a photo booth that uh, hit, we got up to 30, uh, no, 36. Yeah. Okay. So we got up to 36 check marks yeah. and we launched the thing and it changed the entire photo booth industry. Amazing. They, they said, you guys are the Apple of photo booths, all this stuff, which is ridiculous to even say, but it was, it was neat, you know, yeah. and we started doing different things. Like instead of making the business cards, a business card, um, we made the business card into a prop, a little mustache. So you can hold the business card 
here and put it up to your face <laughs> and use that and then you would take that and that's how you would get your photos later that's clever so it was just all these little things like when you pay attention to those details um and that was snapped in uh it got to a point where i handed it over to a business partner um i moved on to some other things as i sometimes do and uh unfortunately snapden's no longer around these days oh, it's too kind bad. of ran into some tough times that's a that's an interesting market but yeah. um some good learnings yeah yeah well i mean uh, especially at a moment like now i imagine uh it was successful in areas where people congregate and there just isn't much of that happening these days so yeah it yeah. would have had a rough time uh but uh I, i'm so impressed um Brandon, mostly just the focus on human behavior and, um, you know, how we like to interact with things and really having that be the driver of your design and decision making. Um, very impressive. Um, so tell us then about the transition from uh, what appears to be from Boeing to Red Bull. Um, I was just trying to get the chronologies to, to sync up. So yeah, maybe I better let you do that. <laughs> yeah. If you're looking at my LinkedIn, so I've never had a resume in my life. I just, I just have not, I haven't needed one because yes. I just right. seem to like happenstance to find my way into opportunities. That's the best. Um, so if, if it's on LinkedIn, they make you write this whole like thing. That's and right, I don't yeah. even know if it's exactly accurate. There's a lot of weird <laughs> things in my life, but um so to caveat the red bull thing uh i was at i was at boeing and doing a bunch of research and development some projects had wrapped up and i always as a creative outlet really liked entering online contests and then this is again 2010 11 12 so there was a lot more like facebook contests and all sorts of things like that and one of the things I really enjoyed was anything that you had to do a very creative submission. So I would write an acrostic, which is like, you know, the first letter and it spells a word this way and makes something this way. Gotcha. And I won a surfboard from, um, <laughs> from one of the surfboard companies. And then I made this weird collage of photos on a Facebook contest and I won, I don't know, something like $6,000 worth of GoPro stuff. Wow. And there was this right. other little contest where I solved this puzzle um, and won a surfboard or a snowboard and a couple grand. So I just always really liked doing these submiss, like I always really liked doing these submissions that were very creative. Nice. But the key to winning those was always to go and read the rules mm -hmm. so you knew your audience. So you understood the judging criteria and all this stuff. And right. once you knew the audience, you knew the problem you were solving for, which right. is to win the contest. You would go in and you would basically set your process so that it was aligned with the criteria. So you, you leveraged knowledge to win. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I think is an important aspect of problem solving. It's like, True. know what problem you're solving. Yeah. But a friend of mine sent me a Facebook message. He said, Brandon, there's a uh, Red Bull. They want big ideas. First prize is $5,000. So I was like, all right, I have a couple big ideas. What's the second <laughs> prize? The second prize was like $3,000. I was like, what's the third prize? A thousand bucks. I was like, all right, this is worth 24 hours of time. Let's do this. Wow. So, okay. so I got a bunch of uh, my friends together, pizza, beer, garage, <laughs> a bunch of materials. And I said, all right, guys. We're going to build a Rube Goldberg machine that opens a can of Red Bull because wow. you had to submit this video to explain your idea. And my idea, if, are you familiar with a Rube Goldberg machine? Do you know? What I'm, what some members of the audience may not be. So if you wouldn't mind chatting through it. So a Rube Goldberg machine uh, is essentially a very convoluted way to do something very simple. You've likely seen videos on it. Uh, the mousetrap goes off, it pulls a string, knocks over a bunch of dominoes, pops a balloon, drops some water, bucket raises, and then you have toast. It's like a marble you know? going the entire way, and then toothpaste comes out. Exactly. And they're beautiful. Like, when you really get into it, they're, they're amazing. Yeah. And there's quite a few STEM schools that use them as engineering tasks, and they're, they're beautiful and just the whole ridiculousness of them. So my pitch to Red Bull was a global scale, human interactive Rube Goldberg machine. 
that would chase New Year's around the entire globe, uniting the world in 24-hour celebration of sports, athletics, art, culture, science, engineering, math, technology, humanity, wow. and just unite the entire planet on a New Year's. And you, it's, it's actually very easy to follow the sun around in 24 yeah. hours. You start yeah. at Christmas Island, you go all the way around, you end in Hawaii. Yeah. And, it, and, and I, we built this Rube Goldberg machine. We went and sent it to Red Bull. Uh, I got somehow six, nearly 6,000 votes got into the top five, went through three other rounds, got to go to Red Bull North America and pitch to wow. uh, most of their staff, plus a leadership team and a couple of the Red Bull athletes. And even for the presentation, I went and I made a little Rube Goldberg machine that would introduce me. And <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. I just flung a tennis ball into somebody, I nearly took somebody's eye out in the <laughs> audience. But, Where yeah. is Red Bull North America? It's in Santa Monica. Uh, right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome, but horrible because all the other contestants got to fly in and hang out <laughs> in really cool hotels, and I got to stay at my house and commute 11 miles. Yeah, but, there were other treats that came your way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I ended up kind of tying for first or getting second, but regardless. Uh, after I met the CEO of the company, who was also actually a, a mechanical engineer, and they uh, put me in touch with a guy named Dr. Andy Walsh. And Dr. Andy Walsh yeah. is a renowned sports scientist, visionary, sure. uh, human performance thinker. That's right. He was brought in by the owner of Red Bull, Dietrich Mateschitz, to uh, essentially give high-end top-end services to uh elite, basically elite athletes and the one percent effect is something that andy was always striving for as his own personal philosophy which right. essentially was can we learn from humanity to improve elite athletes by by just one more percent yeah. but can we learn from elite athletes to improve humanity by one percent yeah. And those would be in the areas of um, education, health, adventurousness, and basically care for the environment. And that was nice. what Andy's vision for a world that if it could be 1% better would be pretty awesome. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I met Dr. Andy Walsh and he just said, look, you've been solving hard problems, but the wrong hard problems. Hmm. And he opened my eyes to this idea that people are the most challenging and dynamic yeah. thing to solve problems with and for. Yeah, and absolutely. at that point it sent me just on this tear maybe eight years ago on consuming everything I possibly could on human performance, uh, physiology, biology, neuroscience, philosophy related to it, like everything. Amazing. And, and, and my role at Red Bull well, sorry, I, I feel like I was cutting you off. No, I was just, I'm in no. wonder. I mean, I'm just so part envy, but part wonder of like, wow, that's just so amazing. And I, I would love to be a student of all those disciplines and, and, and do that. So uh, as a friend, I'm thrilled and happy for you. <laughs> you had that opportunity. It's really, it's, this is so wonderful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's totally random. And even, like I say, sometimes I reflect on my 10 year old self and now my 10 year old self's just really confused. <laughs> what did you, huh? <laughs> but yeah, he, he basically was setting in place just this idea that uh, sports science or performance could be a little bit more integrated by creating better models of how we look at it and creating better environments for people to practice and flourish Nice. And and it was just yeah it's it was very exciting and yeah. Well, you dabbled in a lot of things from like uh, gym equipment to wearable tech to neuro and biofeedback systems. Um, what were some of your favorite projects to work on that you can uh, share? Yeah. With? Uh, <laughs> uh, there's there's been quite a few, but. I, I think one of my more favorite projects was, um, uh, so to, to frame my kind of role on this group and to frame the group up, uh, 
uh, at the time, there was a group in the very background, and it's, it's actually a small little 1,500 square foot back of a 70,000 square foot building in right. Santa Monica, gotcha. and it had a little rinky-dink gym in it, but there was just so much energy and power in the people who were there and the way that we helped these athletes and really connected to them, um, any of the sponsored athletes for Red Bull. And my role was a, essentially like a human performance technologist, which is what they called me. And I looked at what an athlete's needs were, and I would try to piece together some of the parts that our group did and the services we offered, everything from medical to strength and conditioning to uh, tech to experiential things. And I would piece those together to try and pair it with something that made sense as a plan, again, systems thinking, and then also integrating a tech aspect if it was needed. Yeah. So, but it has to be thoughtful. You have to have a thoughtful use of technology with people. Just don't throw it on to throw it on. And so you could kind of think of it like James Bond, uh, 007. He had Q Branch. Sure. So I was kind of Q of Q Branch for Red Bull athletes. Yeah, and we had this really weird strike one time where we had an, uh, an athlete who was a boat skipper and he wanted to sail a little foiling boat down a giant wave. And the problem was, is that when you foil, there's this small little wing that's under the water and everything's really nice if it's traveling at the right speed because uh, it creates lift sure. and it lifts the craft out of the water. Right. The second that that gets too much speed to it, right. it meets like a max velocity. Right. You start getting cavitation or what we would do in the air, you start getting like stall and yep. basically things go really bad. At yeah, that point. Uh, dangerous as well. Very dangerous. And the challenge was, is they didn't know how fast big waves moved underwater. So there was all of a sudden some 20 to 35 foot waves at Jaws and um, in Hawaii, right. big waves. Yeah. And they called and said, Brandon, we need you on a plane today. And tomorrow we need you in the water at Jaws with uh, Ian Walsh's rescue crew, his brothers, um, just uh, insanely talented, gifted, hardworking watermen. And they're going to take you out and you need to quickly come up with a way to measure water speed velocity uh, down the face of a 30 foot wave. Unbelievable. And I was well, just like, okay. And it, you, you need a few measurements, right? Because it's the differential in velocity that becomes problematic. So that's what they, you know, the, the, the people who are, putting the project on, they said, we just need the water speed velocity. I'm like, well, no, yeah, there's a lot of other things. I need. <laughs> so I rush out, this call came in at, I don't know, nine in the morning and my flight was at six. And so I rush out to all the stores. I go and buy some GPS, some wind sensors, some wind direction sensors. I try to clues together a water flow measurement, but then I'm like, wait a second. Now jet skis have, uh, a, a tech or um, a speedometer and so that is actually a measure of the water through the, the intake right, um, slow, yeah. so I was like all right I got that and then a whole bunch of GoPros because essentially I needed to rig a jet ski up with all these sensors mm -hmm. that I had to start and stop and use with a mobile device and then record so that I had a timestamp for everything. So I knew what was happening with what, because there was a lot going on. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing is I'm sitting on the back of this jet ski. We're going out there. I'm like, wow, this is really beautiful. And then I see the first wave and I just kind of like this big lump in my throat. And I love surfing. So the whole time I'm like, oh, that would be really fun over there. And I'm just like, no, that's, this is, this is what, what am I doing right now? And later, um, I realized that I was so overwhelmed with everything that I didn't have a good timestamp for any of the data. So oh. I, I didn't even know where to go through like three hours of footage to even right. find the waves that, of interest. So I knew when I was on things. And yeah, I could go look at the GPS and kind of find spikes and stuff, but it's it's a little noisy. Yeah. So later that night, I had taken off a uh, a heart rate monitor that I had on my wrist at the time, a company that had gone out of business, but was one of my favorites at the time. And it had five heart rate spikes. Uh -huh. And there were five waves 
but basically oh. I was able to use my physiological reaction oh, of being absolutely over aroused, terrified wow. to know exactly when the waves came in. Wow. So I just looked at the timestamps on that when I looked at the data and was like, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to wear a heart rate strap every time I'm on a project so I can use my, my panicking to, uh, to help me with data science. Oh my God. That is phenomenal. <laughs> it's like your internal body clock physiologically driven as a data source. Yeah. Yeah. That was clever. Cool. Very clever. And I wore the same thing actually uh, on my son's birth as well. And it was really cool because the very, the, the absolute down to the second of his birth that was marked on the birth certificate, there's a spike wow. in my data of a bunch of different uh, signals. It was really cool. I was like, this is the exact moment I met my son and then I have a, a data slice of it. <laughs> wow. That's really, that's something. I tell you, those are the uh, two best days in the world, aren't they? The days that your yeah. kids are born. It's like nothing can go wrong with the world. It's, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> did you uh did you know the the sex of your kids yeah did you find that out before beforehand yeah oh yeah now our second one we well i was able to convince my wife to wait and okay. not check the card oh. and we we totally forgot to check for like two or three minutes <laughs> and, and the doctors were just like uh girl we were like Oh my God. So it was cool. Cause we had two celebrations. It was like, we had three kids. Oh wow. That's brilliant. <laughs> so your oldest is a daughter and their second is a son. Oldest is a son. And then oh, youngest so, is. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. For us, um, it was more just the practicality of it. Name, decor. Uh, and when we had a girl for us, we just wanted the other one to have one of each. Um, and so it was kind of uh, nice when that played out. Um, That's awesome. But it's uh, we 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 got uh, the practicality hurt us because the first one we had name picked out all this stuff picked out and then he pops out and we're like you don't look like this name oh no so we just had to scramble before they discharge us from the hospital wow. to come up with a new name right so we're just looking at him and going through names and looking at him and going oh <laughs> got it <laughs> um, but yeah so for the second one we're like. Let's just pick a name when she's out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Otherwise, his birth certificate would have said baby boy Larson. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wow. Good story. Um, so it sounds like an amazing time at Red Bull. And thanks for that share about going out uh, to Hawaii. Um, it, Perpetual Notion was a consulting business you were running. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, basically the high level of that is uh, I, I always needed this outlet yeah. and I really love helping other people solve problems. One of the things is, is that when you can, when you can find somebody who's really driven and who really understands their area and if you can open that person up to the other ways of thinking about this thing they've always known a lot about, they just, they go boom and it's like unleashing this power that they can then go and run with. And so perpetual notion, again, the idea of this, this notion that keeps going yeah. is, was, was just put in place as a consultancy, a side, a side hustle so <laughs> that I could help others design products. Right. Um, I could pursue products of my own, things like that. So we, in between we the online from, competitions. <laughs> Right, exactly. In between the, I actually had to put, I just retired. I wanted to go out on top after the Red oh, Bull thing. I was like, well, I don't think, how do I don't I think, this? yeah, I, I got a job. That was, <laughs> right. that was awesome. Like, I, I want a job somehow. You do the present value of the earnings over those seven years. That was quite a win. <laughs> that was, yeah, there's no topping that. It's just like, well worth the 24 up. hours you spent. <laughs> Well, of course, there's yeah. subsequent time commitments uh, involved. Yeah. Uh, um, well, that uh, idea that you just shared around perpetual notion fits so well with your mantra of conceive, create, repeat. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and that doesn't, it doesn't relate to my two kids. 
like there was some conceiving, <laughs> creating, repeating there, but I won't get into that. But yeah, it's just this idea of let the idea grow and incubate and, and build and, and then birth it yeah. and then create, do something with it, bring it to fruition and then do it again. So it's just conceive, create, repeat. And the weirdest thing is that it was maybe, I've, I've just had this idea in my head and I've carried it around. I put it on everything that uh, means a lot to me for several years. But I think it was five years ago, I was in a, in a bar and the guy put down a coaster and it was from some vodka company. Mm-hmm. And I flipped it over and it said, conceive, create, repeat on it. And I was like, what and so <laughs> apparently i know i was like ah, huh and then i had looked and and uh i looked up online and it was just this little thing that this company had used as a ad campaign for you know a quarter season or something like that they weren't based company. in shreveport louisiana were they <laughs> i think it was like stoli or something i don't i don't remember yeah okay. all right because if tito's can come out of austin you know, you could do vodka out of Shreveport. Yeah, I think you're gonna get more like, uh, like, um, what, what's the, what's the stuff you make in a moonshine? Moonshine. Yeah, I think you're gonna get more <laughs> moonshine out of Shreveport. Yeah. Well, your dad can make a sign: conceive, create, repeat. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I've never asked him for one. Man. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I do want to spend some time talking about VBIT and VBIT Labs and your transition from Red Bull to that entity and now um, your work with uh, within Psychometrics. So uh, share with us about um, about that. Yeah. So uh, during my time at Red Bull, we were trying to find ways to structure different programs. So uh, we had this idea of a cog system, which is basically just the domains that we focused on when working with an individual. So it included strength and conditioning, uh, skill sets needed for certain activities. So at Red Bull, we had at the time about 900 global athletes that we supported uh, over 162 different disciplines. Amazing. So you have to kind of generalize a few things and then go hyper-specific in other areas and Um, So it's kind of interesting and you need a model in order to keep you consistent with that. So we had this model that allowed us to look at that. But one area that Andy kind of stuck me with at one point, because I think nobody wanted it because it's kind of a rat's nest was the mental performance side Mm. in um, elite sport. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, I'm a mechanical engineer, but I like to piece together things. So um, myself and a colleague there, a guy named Ryan Bahadizing, we went and looked through all the literature. We looked through all these different aspects of what differentiates the brain, which is the structure, to the mind, which are the capabilities and the capacities, everything from how you build a thought to the things that maybe uh, allow you to leverage that information quicker or slower, such as executive function, processing speed. Essentially, we're getting into like the mechanics of how the brain operates and works. So this is a nice blend of quite different areas of science, and we put it into this model. One of the things that we found and had identified with another one of my colleagues, a guy named Dr. Dan Turner, we really felt that it was important for athletes, but also just individuals in general, to kind of understand who they are. And it's very rare that we sit down and say, who am I? And I could say, I'm Brandon, but that's not who I am. Right. I'm a husband. Uh, that's not exactly who I am. I'm a dad. That's, that, that's, I mean, these are all little pieces, but who am I? Why do I act the way I do? Why do I behave the way I do? Why do I think the way that I do? Why do I have cycles yep. of happiness, of sadness? Why, just why? Right? Why do we make the decisions we make? All of that. That really defines exactly. us. Yeah. Why do I like some people? Why do I not? Why am I open sometimes? Why am I not? What? why do I choke sometimes? Why can't, why do I push through sometimes? And so this led us down this, this trail of trying to understand how to teach somebody measure first, but then teach somebody about themselves, about human behavior, and then set up strategies to leverage that information for long-term health and benefit. And 
one of the areas that led me to was um, kind of somebody I would consider a mentor these days is a Dr. Galen Buckwalter. Um, Galen is a psychometrician. He is actually, he's the guy that brought science-based personality profile matching to online dating. He was one of the very early scientists of eHarmony. And he's had an amazing career of the things that he's done and the networks he has. And so we built out these psychometric tools at Red Bull to try and understand athletes in a different way than had typically been done. And so I'll take a quick aside there. What happens in science, especially psychometrics, personality-based matching, um, and this is also the reason why individualized medicine and health is actually really hard to do, is that science is typically done in a lot of silos. So if you imagine you kids, right, drawing a rainbow, you use five colors, they're Roy G. Biv, right? Right. And they're all like their own squiggly lines, but they're a discrete color. You use one crayon for each. And that's, to me, kind of like what science is like in general, is you have that one person who has studied grit forever, and that one person who studied resilience forever, and the one person who studied executive function forever, but they don't get together and like, oh, let's connect the dots, because a rainbow, if you were to properly draw it, is probably a a deca something number of, of colors. It's a spectrum. That's right. There is, there's only one little part that's red. Right. Everything else is different. Th- and then you take the hues, the tones, the brightness, the shades. That's how humans see the world. That's how we interact with the world. We're not in these little discrete things that we humans made up, right? There, there aren't these constraints. Exactly. And so what's important is integrating those areas of science. And so what we were doing with Galen and his group to help benefit athletes is what if resilience is not really resilience? What if resilience is a construct that is better shaped with uh, spirituality plus optimism plus all these other siloed words that then blend to create an actual model of how we interact and see and, and, and navigate the world. So that was a big goal we had. And as my time at Red Bull was closing out and it was time to, I I was surprised I was there so long because the work was so uh, incredible and amazing. And, and it just became this time to transition these into some more targeted passions I have, Mm -hmm. which turned into how can you use psychometrics, uh, behavioral science to bring those to a engaging experience that helps individuals um, basically humanize their digital experiences right. and connect more. So that's a little bit of where the transition kind of came through. And, and, and there was another area in there, a guy who he recently passed away, very sad. I was very sad about this, but um, Anders Ericsson, uh, he's, he was down at Florida State, a, a renowned thinker, he was the person who was essentially responsible for what Malcolm Gladwell coined the 10,000 hours and outliers. And it was kind of a a weird take on Anders work, you know, like a lot of those kind of books are, but um, Anders had basically found that you need to have X number of uh, deliberate practice in something. And he was the person that coined that he was the founder of, uh, mass memorization strategies and techniques. He has an incredible book called Peak. uh, And it is such a good book. But books like that, individuals like Robert Sapolsky, who is the Stanford researcher on stress and human behavior. Um, You have Carl Zimmer in the last few years published or wrote a really great uh, book, like editorial type journalistic book on genetics, the history and the future of it. Mm. So when you start looking at behavior and stress and decision-making and all these things together, you start creating these little models where you can say, wow, wouldn't this be amazing to make this easy for people to use and benefit from to have deeper connection with each other and in the, in the world, but then also to solve some problems like build something that matters. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so timely. This, uh, 
notion of leveraging technology to build connection with people given where we are now and um you know one of the first projects i understand with with vbit is looking at um sort of education and and children and uh and, and parents uh, and so forth maybe describe a little bit about that yeah the the idea so vbit stands for a values-based information tool it just made sense of vbit and what's really compelling about it is that whenever we look to the use of behavioral science or psychometrics it's i mean psychometrics itself is a scary word and we need to be able to make that approachable and uh it, it works best if it's a direct measure so a lot of new technology it uses behavioral science um, it to infer behavior from your patterns and things on a keyboard and keyword searches and things but it's never as good as just asking somebody about their their states, their traits, their values, their beliefs, their goals, and then leveraging that in a way that science can, can you, can, you can make science accessible and help people navigate things. So the reason that VBED is set up is two, two areas. One is to create consumer products that help uh, tackle very interesting problems for interesting audiences. And the second part is to put that research to work in high impact areas. So an example of the consumer product would be something we're in discussions with some, with some large players in the gaming industry to bring a AI based companion app to esports. Mm -hmm. Essentially what it would do is leverage uh, behavioral science with a performance flavor and it would enable gamers to find huge benefits to their gaming life through simple things they can learn about themselves and simple routines they can have outside of the game. So essentially an AI companion for your life outside the game to benefit your life inside the game. Nice. And it's, it's just kind of that, that way of slipping in some health and wellness um, in, in, a, in a way that people are very open to because yeah. it's goal based, it's values based, it's, um, it's oriented on your states and traits, right? Right, right? So the other side is the impact. And we're spinning up a research organization right now. That resource organization will house academic science and then transfer that to easy to ex uh, understand and apply um, in specific areas. So identify a need, match science to it, put a product that enables it to scale and for people to engage with that information in a meaningful way that's life-changing. One of the areas we found that is very important right now is what distance learning and COVID have done to families with children who are in school. So the, the kids are having, um, in some cases, a hard time. Uh, you're not getting the social connections you would normally have. Parents are now, uh, not only the the worker, the parent, the mom, the dad, they're also the uh, the tutor, the education coordinator, the activity mm -hmm. champion, the everything. Yep. And this can be very hard to do alone. So we're working with uh, like groups like SciML, which is Galen Buckwalter's machine learnings, uh, psychology and psychometrics group, right. um, as well as another partner of ours, which is Precious Blue Dot. These guys are the guys that created, uh, that owned Rare, um, which sold to Microsoft a long time ago, but for any of the game nerds and buffs, or even myself, because this was part of my life, they developed Donkey Kong and GoldenEye for right. uh, Nintendo. Right. So the GoldenEye, which changed yeah. multi-person you know, shooter games. It, like so many hours of my life were <laughs> <Dare you. laughs> oh. But essentially, you have to have these engagement models in order to make science accessible because to be just to put out right there is we know so much about human behavior these days not everything there's a lot to solve but science knows a lot it's just not communicated well or leveraged well there's so many tools that have so much efficacy a lot of evidence behind them they're not deployed in any kind of meaningful way so essentially they're useless Right. It's just useless information sitting in academic silos. Yeah, unapplied. So we want to take that information out and transport it over. So for this first project that we're spinning up now, uh, um, 
essentially it's a tool that allows a cross-platform connectedness tool, which allows individuals to leverage their um, information about themselves, which is very private. Um, we, don't, we don't store anything. We think these should be private experiences when you're learning about yourself. And then you get to choose how you share it with, with other people. But um, we help people form social groups that are built around uh, connectedness, meaning, shared purpose, uh, things like that, in order to build social resilience and, and get through this together. You, know, you actually bring the tribe back, right? It takes a village. Yeah. So let's re rebuild the village with some tools that enable that. That's brilliant. Oh, I love it. I think it's such a sorely needed tool. Um, so I love that it's being worked on and I uh, can't wait for it to be widely available. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just thinking selfishly for my own kids, how much they'd benefit from that. <laughs> I think that, I think that it's just very important for anybody who's working on any kind of problem um, or solution or innovation to really, really pay attention to, to make sure you're solving the right problem. Um, you don't, you don't do that without getting to the fundamentals. Uh, you got people like Elon Musk's first principles, right? Um, I call them kernels of truth. You have to get down to the exact thing that you're trying to solve. And that takes a lot of time sometimes. And so, but I think when you get to that place, you can find so much power in putting so much energy against that, that you can make a lot of big change and impact. So as, as the world has so many problems, as the world has so many issues, but also so many great things, I think that better problem solvers will make a better world. So uh, it's just, I, I just, I want more good problem solvers in the world, you know? <laughs> so well yeah. said. Um, I love that. And, and I love how you talked about how you have to put and devote energy towards it because it takes time. And so yeah. in most, uh, entrepreneurial endeavors I've pursued there's a kernel of an idea um, but it, it takes a while for what it really does or its benefit to reveal itself and you just have to keep going and knocking it around asking the questions testing it just and then finally like aha this is what it's meant to do <laughs> yeah that's that's one of the keys to performance is focus on the journey and not the outcome yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Well, as you said, Bryn, we could go on for hours and uh, let's give some thought about doing just that. Thank you so much, Brandon, for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Asim. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.